Hi, my name is Lou, and the Old Testament reading is found in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show your kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid a homage to him. What is your servant that you should regard, that you should show regard for a dog such as I? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carol, and the New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Tony. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing while we pray. O Lord, open our eyes that we would see Jesus. O Lord, open our ears that we would hear your words. Lord, open our hearts that your spirit would cause us to love and serve and follow you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, today we're beginning a short three-week series called One Another, 
And it's based on the different one another texts, the one another verses, if you will, in the New Testament. And there are several of them. Several of the times these phrases show up uh, throughout Paul's letters, throughout John's letters, love one another, be kind to one another, and so on. We're choosing three, three of those. Today is be kind uh, to one another. And, uh, and then after this series, we'll begin kind of a longer six-week series during Lent to, that will take us all the way up until Easter. But we're doing this uh, little series right here on these one another phrases, these one another sentences, because life involves others. <laughs> and you might say that actually the problem with life is that it involves other people. And if we're really to boil it down, the problem with other people is that they're not just like us, or that they don't see how amazing we are. And that what a burden it is to go through life to try to help everybody appreciate how awesome you are. I'm joking. But truly, one of the strains in life is when relationships are strained. Friendships, work relationships, home relationships, marriages. When they're good, everything in the world is better. Everything is sweeter. The sun shines brighter. The bird's song is, is, is more melodious. But when relationships are strained, it has a way of, of straining and souring everything. So we, we need to talk about this. At the same time, on the other hand, one of the greatest joys of life is that we get to live and do this with other people, right? And you think about some of the lesser joys, say, like going and enjoying a beautiful scenery or even having a, a really delicious meal. One of, the, one of the things about those lesser joys is those joys are multiplied when they can be shared with others. And so it just seems like, man, this is so much better when we can share this, when we can have someone else appreciate this. That's why we go and listen to beautiful music together. That's why we go and look at art together. That's why we go on walks together, because joys can be multiplied when they're shared. It is the one anotherness of life that gives it its sweetness. I was thinking of the words of the song that Nat King Cole recorded, and I, it occurred to me that actually for some of you, you may not remember that version. You might remember a different remix version that was on the Moulin Rouge soundtrack. It's the same song, believe it or not, but the lyrics go like this. There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far. Over land and sea, a little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, a magic day, he passed my way. And while we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And so it is that one of the greatest things about life is having someone to love, a friend to love, friendships to love, a person to love, a spouse to love perhaps, a children to love, parents to love, co-workers to love, and to be loved in return. And so our question today is, what do the Scriptures have to say to us about being kind to one another? This one aspect of the one anotherness. What do the Scriptures have to say? We heard the New Testament reading this morning from Ephesians 4, and we're really just going to take the first part, this first phrase here in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And we put them together because kindness here simply means this sort of gentleness 
the softness. And so it's connected to tenderheartedness. It's connected to that, that, that really it's very difficult to be kind when your hearts are hard. And that being kind to one another really is linked to this idea of being tenderhearted. And so the scriptures say, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, to expound on it, to say, let there be tenderness in your relationships. Tenderheartedness that produces kindness in your relationships. But what does that look like? You know, there was, I don't know if you saw this, but there was an interesting article that was going around, and it, it summarized the work of some psychologists that had worked with marriages. Now, I think many of these conclusions from this study are, are fascinating, but actually I would suggest that they really apply to all relationships. They apply to friendships. They apply to work relationships. They apply to housemates. They reply, oh, I think you can apply some of their insights to all kinds of relationships. So here, let's take a look at this. What does kindness look like? Well, the Gottmans are these psychologists that have spent 40 years or or more studying thousands of couples and looking at lasting relationships. And they're looking for traits that help relationships last. Or or what do the masters of lasting relationships have that the disasters of relationships don't have? And this is their terminology. And one of the things they said is it's actually a kind of kindness. Kindness. And when you think of kindness, you might think of like sort of, you know, milk and cookies kind of kindness. Just be nice. Just say hello, you know, be sweet. But they say, no, 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 there's actually something deeper to this. It's not just kind of a smile and a nod and a, you know. There's a kindness that, that actually shows up in very specific ways. And there's three things that kind of emerged. The first is the idea of turning toward one another. Turning toward And what they go on to explain is that all of us throughout the day send out these little bids for connection, a little bid for connection, a little, hey, hey, do you see me? And whether the other person sees it as a bid for connection or not kind of affects how they respond. So let me give you an example. So someone says, you know, two people are walking by the street and someone says, hey, man, look at that new donut shop. And the other person's like, Dude, do you know how many calories are in donuts? Okay, that's just trying to, you know, it's just a bid for connection. Or, you know, uh, let's say um, in our home, when I try to talk to Holly about the Broncos, like, babe, I think Peyton's hurt. I think he's going to get better. I think he's going to come back. Now, she could say, okay, okay. But really what's happening there is not simply a conversation about this. It's a bid for connection. And the question is, it's a chance for the other person to turn towards you. It took me a while to catch on to this because there were lots of times where Hollywood asked me a question about homeschooling curriculum. You know, we homeschool our kids. And and, uh, I, I I don't know, whatever, choose. Not realizing that, oh, this is a bid for connection. This is an invitation to be part of your world. And so will I turn toward you or will I kind of leave you on your own? One of the things the Gottmans discovered is in marriages specifically, they, they, they followed up with them over the course of six years. And for all the marriages that after six years had ended in divorce, they turned toward each other only on average of about 33% of the time. Lots of bids for connection being sent out there, but very few turning toward the other and saying, I'm sorry, tell me about that. Explain this to me. What do you love about the Broncos? 
Are you wearing that orange and blue bow tie on Super Bowl Sunday as a silent protest? <laughs> Why, yes, I am. For couples who were still together after six years, they had, on average, 87% of the time they turned toward the other when there was a bid for connection. It's pretty high. That means they had learned the art of saying, this person's not bringing up coffee or a donut or a bird or a football game or homeschool just, just because. I mean, maybe. But there's also something deeper going on. There's, it's a bid for connection. See, I think sometimes, specifically even with relationships, we, it might be that we focus so much on compatibility that we've, that we've forgotten that there's an art to cultivating a turning toward the other. Tell me about that. What is it you love about that? I don't get your fascination with birds and finches and whatever. And tell me about it. Explain it. There is a turning toward that happens. I, I wonder if actually that's why we post on Facebook. <laughs> In this age of hyper-connectedness, that, that maybe there is this profound loneliness that we put something out there because I just want someone else to know that I didn't have a great day today. And if someone says, man, I'm ready for the weekend, what they don't need in the comment thread is your theology of work. What they need is, uh, I see you. Sorry. You see what I'm saying? Bids for connection and turning toward. The second thing they said, All right, you, you know what kindness kind of looks like? Kindness looks like being generous about one another's intentions. It means when something happens that you don't understand, you don't automatically jump to the worst possible interpretation. I texted this person like three days ago, and I, I still haven't heard back. It's probably because they're hanging out with their other best friends. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. And you kind of work through this. Okay, so, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, let's just assume that they, you know, there was something going on and they just forgot or... Maybe they were caught up in what they're doing. Maybe they're not actually ignoring you. And you know, how, so much of this, it always, it's a wonder to me how diverse we are even in America. You know, I spent, Holly was with me and we were in uh, Michigan earlier this week, the good old Midwest. And not only were we in Michigan, but we were with a lot of folks who are from the Dutch Reformed tradition in Michigan or different Reformed tradition. Right? And the, actually, that's pretty enthusiastic compared to what I saw, you know. So, so there's, you, you get to, all of a sudden, someone's saying, their response to you is, you know, like I taught a seminar, and, and, and one, one of the times it was like, I left, I thought, I don't, I don't know if that was resonating with anybody, because they're just kind of looking like, hmm, hmm. But then they came up and said a few things, and, and and then I remembered, oh, yeah, that response actually means that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, I just, you know, like, I come from the East where, and I, in our home specifically, so there's personality, there's culture, everything's just on the top of the surface, just bubbling over. You never have to wonder what I'm thinking, you know, it's just right there. And so you have a choice with kindness to, to how you interpret someone else's actions. I've read this, been reading this fascinating book called Watching the English. It's all about English behavior, you know. And then they could have, they, they, the, the sociologist was writing it, said you, the English could have the greatest, you know, most five-star cuisine meal ever and, and say, well, that's not bad. 
How, how do I work with your understatedness? How should I interpret this? Kindness says, I'm going to choose the most generous possible interpretation of your actions. Kindness says, I'm going to choose to be generous. Your intentions here were probably great. I'm not going to interpret your silence for coldness. I'm not going to interpret your reservedness for meanness. I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose to be charitable, be generous about how I interpret your intentions. The third thing that they talked about, and this actually came from a different study and a different set of psychologists on a smaller, much smaller scale, but they were looking at different uh, relationships again, but I, I think it, uh, there's, there's crossover with other kinds of relationships besides marriage. And they said, really, you know what it is? It's sharing one another's joy. And they said, one of the great misconceptions is that relationships bond over how you share hard times. Well, that, that's certainly true. But actually, they said, more profound bonding happens with how you share one another's joy. Because, and if you think about it, because we live in a, in a, in a you know, fairly well-to-do culture and society, the norm for you is that little good things happen to you throughout the day or throughout the week. That's more the norm for you. And so what you and I are looking for is someone with whom to share that. Hey, I tried this new place today for lunch. It was amazing. Just little bits of joy. Or maybe bigger bits of joy. I bought a new truck today. Someone was telling me after the first service, they, they, they bought a new truck and they wanted to share their joy. And the, the first thing someone said to them was, I bet it gets terrible gas mileage. <laughs> that is not sharing another person's joy, okay? And so they, so they began to outline, you know what, there's at least four ways to respond to someone else's good news. One is active destructive. Dude, I got the job. You got the job? Are you even, do you even know how to do that? Are you, do you, are you even qualified for that? How'd you do that? How'd you get that job? Actively tearing them down. The other is passive destructive. Dude, I got the job. You're going to be busy. Never going to see you again. So much for hanging out on the weekends. Dude, hey man. Passive constructive. Dude, I got the job. Cool, man. Hey, bro, I'm on the next level of Angry Birds. Huh? No, I just. It's constructive. It's something nice, but it's pretty passive. It's just sort of like, mm hmm, yay, yeah, cool. In other news, I mean, it just sort of takes the air out of you, doesn't it? It just sort of deflates you. That's not a dig at the Patriots, by the way, but. I mean, maybe it was. <laughs> and then there's active constructive. Dude, I got the job. No way. Sit down. Tell me about it. What happened? Did you, how'd you feel about the interview? What, I mean, what's, so what's it going to mean? What are your responsibilities going to be? Like, tell me all about it. Active constructive. Now, if we were to do an informal survey here, I bet every one of us would say, if I had to choose, I would choose for everyone to respond to me with active constructive, right? We all want to be like that. And one of the things, one of the things these, these, that comes out of these studies is they say kindness doesn't work like a talent. You know, either you have it or you don't. Kindness kind of works like a muscle, that the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. That's great. 
Now, if this were a TED Talk and not a sermon in church, we'd stop right here. So go, everybody, go stretch this muscle, use this muscle of kindness. Good luck. But this is church. So we've got to get a little deeper than this. Because what happens, <laughs> what happens if you weren't raised in a home that was kind? What if you didn't have good friendships? What if you were bullied? What if all you learned was meanness? How do you learn that muscle of kindness? Or maybe, what if the person that we're talking about doesn't deserve kindness? What if they don't appreciate what you're doing and you're trying to do these things and they're like, mm-hmm, thanks. And you're sick of being kind. It's hard to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's hard to be generous about their intentions because you think, I, I don't think they appreciate What if it's not just that they don't appreciate What if they're actually downright rude? What if you're trying to work for a boss or live with a roommate and you're like, Argh! I hate this person. <gasps> how, how is kindness possible then? Now we've come to the edges of what the social sciences can answer for us. Now no study, no research, no psychologist can say, okay, I'll tell you what to do then. Now we've come to the territory of the gospel. So what, what does Jesus have to say to us about this? Scriptures tell us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that produces something in us. In fact, we'd say it this way. The kindness of God creates tender hearts. And tender hearts become the soil from which the fruit of kindness springs. Hold this metaphor for a moment. Paul says in Galatians that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So if kindness is going to come up like a fruit, it's going to be the Spirit's doing. So that's right. But for fruit to come up, the soil must be soft. So we could switch now into our religious moralism mode and be like, okay, yes, pastor, I will go and make my heart soft. Like, I'm going to try to give, have a soft heart, for goodness sake. No, you can't do that either. So how do we get tender hearts? By beholding the kindness of God. So it's the spirit that brings the fruit of kindness out of the soil of tenderness. But what makes the, our hearts tender is when we behold the kindness of God to us in Christ. The story that we heard in the Old Testament reading it was the story of David becoming king and looking for anyone from the household of Saul. Who is this? Who is Saul? Saul was the original king of Israel, the one who had been chosen, who had been anointed, but who squandered the promise through his own disobedience. Remember the prophet says, Saul, it's not sacrifice that the Lord wants, it's obedience. Saul's disobedience disqualified him from his rightful inheritance. The descendants of Saul should have been cut off. Jonathan, in fact, had already died. The new chosen king, the new and true king of Israel was now on the throne, King David, and David had no obligation 
to do anything good for the household of Saul. And yet David says, find me a servant. Someone from the house of Saul, Ziba, comes and he says, hey, Ziba, tell me, is there anyone there? I said, yeah, there is. There's a son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. And by the way, he's, he's lame. And in this context and in this culture, that means this person should have been cut off and cast out. Not only is he from the wrong household, the one that had squandered their inheritance, but he's also a cripple. There was no reason a king should have been eating with a cripple. Verse 7, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You know what I think? I think this is a foreshadow, an early picture of what Jesus would do for us. Jesus, the true and better David. Jesus, the true king who comes to us, we from the house of Saul, we from the house of Adam who was given the inheritance and squandered it by disobedience, we who should have been cut off and eliminated, we whose line should have ended, we who had no inheritance left. We who not only came from the, long, the wrong lineage, the lineage of Adam and of sin and of the fall and of death, but we who ourselves are crippled because of our own sin, a picture of our own sin, a picture of our own rebellion, we were the ones outside twice because of the wrong lineage. We're from Adam who sinned and because of our own state, because we're crippled in our rebellion and sin. And what will the true king do? Jesus, the true and better David, ascends to the throne and says, where is he? He seeks him out. He calls him up. And he makes an everlasting promise. Oh, man. Seeks him out. Where is there anyone? Calls him up gives him an everlasting promise. Friends, isn't this what Christ has done for us? Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, I'm, I'm living out the true and better David's story. I'm living it out by seeking the weak and the cut off and the cast aside. I am living this out by seeking you out calling you up and making an eternal promise that you will always have a seat at my table. Always have a seat. And you know, there's this phrase in there, even in this story where David says, for the sake of Jonathan, I'll show kindness to you. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan was David's dearest friend who had showed kindness to him, right? I think there's an echo of this when we Pray the prayer of confession each week. Most merciful God Almighty, right off the bat, we're acknowledging God is not mad. God is kind and full of mercy. But then we get all the way down and it says, and now for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. 
Just like David said, hey, Mephibosheth the cripple, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I'm making you an everlasting promise. Friends, God the Father, the great king of all, the one, the God to whom the Jews used to pray, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, blessed are you, Lord God Almighty, the king of the universe. He says, I, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I will have mercy on you. The reformers understood this. The reformers had this conviction that it was the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that's why Calvin and so many others went and whitewashed the walls of these churches and scrubbed off the medieval art, not because they were anti-art, but because so much of the medieval art had images of an angry God. In fact, in many medieval English churches, you'd see a picture of Jesus sitting on a throne and these souls kind of depicted under him, shielding themselves. And the reformer says, that's not the picture of God that we have in Christ. And the most expedient thing they could do was to just scrub the walls of the ark. So forget it. Let's not start with that. People need to believe in the kindness of God. People need to believe in the kindness of God. Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, knew that people really needed to believe in the kindness of God. And so he came up with what's called the comfortable words. Now, comfortable in medieval English is not like comfortable, like, ooh, this is a comfortable chair. Comfortable as in the words that bring comfort to souls deserving or needing in need of mercy. And Cranmer came up with these comfortable words, and in the original prayer book, he puts them right before the table because it's the kindness that leads us to the table. And these are the four comfortable words. Two of them are gospel texts, and two of them are from the epistles. It goes like this. It says, hear the words of Christ our Savior. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then it says, now hear the words of St. John, uh, St. Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now hear the words of St. John. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. Do you see what Cranmer's done? He's created a progression of thought that help you believe the kindness of God. Where does he start? Does he start with a word about your judgment? No. He starts with a word about your longing. That first word, all who are weary and heavy laden. All who travail, all who toil. Isn't it beautiful that the picture that the reformers wanted us to have of Jesus is a God who's very aware of the tiredness of your own soul? A God who's very aware that you've been laboring under religious performance. And a God who says, what is it you're longing for? Come to me. And then the second word says, now let's talk about not just human longing, but divine longing, for God so loved the world. 
And then he says, okay, now let's circle over back to you, but let's take this deeper. What is it that's the source of your weariness and your toil? It's sin. This is a trustworthy saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then without leaving us there in the human condition, he comes back to the divine solution. If anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father. courtroom image is still there, but it's no longer highlighting the picture of Jesus as judge. Who is Jesus in the courtroom scene? The advocate. Your defense lawyer. Oh, oh my God. That's what Cranmer wanted us to see. And when you finish seeing that, when you finish seeing it, But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ himself, who is the propitiation for our sins. The very next word in the liturgy was, so lift up your hearts. How many times do we come to church and feel like someone just made my heart sink? Because I was beat down, told, be kinder, be nicer, be better, be di- do this. And Grandma said, stop that. If we have any hope, of people having tender hearts and kindness to one another, they need to see the kindness of God to them. You know, it's interesting, just yesterday, on a, oh, I want to say on a whim, but I think the Lord had something to do with it. I looked up the Greek for that word kindness in Ephesians, and do you know it's the same word used when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, Christos in Matthew, Christoi in Ephesians. My yoke is kind. It's gentle. And as I am kind to you, be kind to one another. Oh. Thank you, God. 